G'day and welcome to another episode of Perth Property Insider. I'm your host, Jared Mann, and today I'm really excited yet again to be covering a topic that I think is going to help a lot of people on how to find your next deposit. Now, many would-be investors I talk to seem to struggle with finding their next deposit to purchase a property or to invest in other things. And look, at different times in the past, I've certainly been in the same boat. It's been really hard for me as well, especially when my money management habits have not been there. So I did a lot of other things right, but I also had areas letting me down. And in this episode, I wanted to deep dive inside four key areas to help you find your next deposit sooner. And I think that's really going to help you accelerate your wealth and create enough of an asset base to generate the passive income you want now. Let's go inside. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management specialist servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here is your host, Jared Mann. So, the things I'm going to cover today are incredibly powerful, especially when combined, they'll make a massive difference in the deposits that you can save, how quickly you can save them, and then ultimately the number of properties that you can buy or other investments that you can make to grow that asset base and eventually replace your income. So let's start off first area to make a massive difference in finding your next deposit is buying well. Now you might say, well, if you don't have the money at all, how can you buy in the first place? But I'm going to get to finding the money soon. But when you do have it, you want to buy the right asset really well. And I used to think that this this meant buying under market value. So I'd compromise on the location. I'd compromise on the type of property and many other aspects. Sometimes I'd look for something that was subdivided or renovatable, but it didn't have the right foundations to what I was doing to it. So we'll get to the, the adding value in a minute. But in buying well, it's not about buying under the fair market value. That will certainly help, don't get me wrong, but it's far better to pay a fair price for a quality asset than a cheap price for a poor asset. Now, what you're very much looking for here is the right timing in the market, the right location, the right area within that location, and then the right property. So see episodes 33 on my criteria for a top performing property and also take a listen to episode 20 again on buying well in a hot market. If you buy well, you set yourself up to get this deposit back quicker because the market's going to do the heavy lifting. It's always going to be in demand. You're not going to have sharp price drops affecting your valuations at other points in the future. You're going to be have a more steady profile of growth that's more reliable, that's compounding away. And before you know it, you're able to get back your initial deposit that you've put in and reuse it again to buy into another property or into another asset. Check out those episodes. Think about buying well more in terms of the asset selection, not so much buying cheaply. Now, the second thing we can do to find our next deposit as we go is to add value. And I just mentioned it a minute ago. So I use these strategies heavily to not rely on the market and 
cosmetic renovation was my favorite one. I'd check out episode nine where I go deeply into that. And also consider subdivision episode six, 21 and 22 with Jay that we did. That's a real great starting point to looking into those strategies. And perhaps you have a property that you've been sitting on at the moment that could use a cosmetic reno or is subdividable. Now's a great time to consider doing those things. Perhaps when your tenants decide to leave between tenancies, if you've got a good property manager, we could help with getting some quotes, getting other things prior to them vacating. You, if it's a much bigger renovation, you could approach, you could uh, appoint a renovation project manager like a Kelly Dobby that we had on to one of our last episodes on transformational renovations. Listen to that episode as well with all the tips in there and really look at how you can add this value to either an existing property or straight off the bat when you buy a new property. So that if you're adding 10% value, 15% of value over and above what you're spending, then you're another step closer to getting your initial deposit back out to go again. Now, the third way of finding your next deposit, and this may seem obvious, but it isn't to a lot of people that I see, is to check in on your values every six to 12 months. So take the appraisal price range that a sales agent gives you, and I'm more than happy to give you an appraisal anywhere in Perth, and then ask the agent if they can best support the top end of the range that they've given you. Now, that's not necessarily to say that you're going to get that from the market, definitely, but if you can support the appraisal at the top end of the range and you know, put forward your strongest expectation of price to the bank, use that evidence to support a higher valuation, you will be very surprised because you'll start getting your valuations coming back a lot higher and hopefully at the top of the range that, that the property could be worth. And let's say that you've got a $400,000 property, the, the valuation might be, say, 380 to 420. Now, if the banks are always valuing it at 380 and you're able to support a 420 valuation, you've immediately found an extra 10% that you can potentially revalue and refinance out. So combine that with some adding value, combine that with buying well in the first place, and all of a sudden, we could be much greater than 20% in our potential to pull out of the property and able to pull out not just your deposit that you've put in, but potentially more than what you've put in to really accelerate your next purchase. So fourth reason, and I'm going to spend the most amount of time on this one, and I wanted to conceal this tip within the whole episode because if I did a single standalone episode on it, some people might not listen to this because I was guilty myself of doing every all of the three above, but I never focused on becoming a great money manager. And regardless of the size of your income, you have to get control and good money habits or you're never going to be wealthy. Now, that much is certain to me now. Every wealthy person has control of their money and good money habits. And I only learned tighter control of my money out of necessity. We had a downturn in the rental market over the previous four or five years and my business revenue dropped substantially. 
And then I was further tested when we dropped down to one income to have our daughter. And I had to make it my business, my absolute focus to know where every dollar was going, to find a way to get tighter control of my money. And I still wanted to give myself and my partner and, and, and my business some flexibility. And I still wanted to enjoy life along the way. So I didn't want it to be so constrictive that makes life feel like you're in a prison camp. So that's where I came across a, a jar or bucket system for account structure and managing your money. Now, I think it was T. Harvecker that originally showed me this in the Millionaire Mind intensive that he's got. I think there might be an online version that you can take as well. But I've kind of adapted it over the years and also listened to how other people manage their money. And this is what I've come up with. So we have a living expenses account. It's our joint account between me and my wife. We both contribute set amounts straight out of our pays into it. Now, because my there's a big difference between my wife's pay and my pay. She contributes a much smaller amount, but we're both contributing to our overall household and it feels good. So this covers all our household costs, including food, mortgage, insurances, utilities, rates. Like We know the total cost of all of those things per year and we put enough in per fortnight to cover those things without ever having to really check it. We only ever use that joint account to pay for them all. So we set up direct debits, we set up payments from there, we use a card when we go to the shops to, to pay for things out of there, and we very rare, rarely then need to top it up. It's only occasionally when a bunch of expenses might fall together, we put a bit of money in, but sometimes we get a build-up of money in there and we can transfer some out. So secondly, we also have our weekly entertainment and personal spending account. So we each pay a set amount per week to that out of our own salaries and we each pay a similar amount to ourselves for, for that type of spending. And once it's gone, it's gone. There's no more to use. So we can't go out for dinner again if we've used the money that's in there. We have to make it last the full fortnight. And the third account that we have is our own long-term saving account. Now, when things were really tight, this account went by the wayside, as did our, our investing account that we're, I'm going to mention in a minute. But the saving account's really important because you need a separate bucket, a separate jar, if you will, to save up money for, for larger stuff. And you have to do it gradually over the longer term. And we put a set amount of fortnight goes in here into when we each have this type of account. Some couples have a saving account together, but we like to give each other freedom on how we each spend what's in our own saving account. So when we go on things like holidays, we jointly contribute from our own saving accounts to it. When we do home upgrades, if one person really wants the upgrade, the other doesn't, well, they can use their money to do it or we jointly contribute if we really are passionate about doing it together. So we have joint money, but we also have separate money and it gives us both our freedoms to do things with, with it that we want and that we value. Karina pays for a lot of things for our daughter that you know, are not really needed, but then again, I pay for a lot of other things that I think are needed. So we each have different desires and different things we want to spend our money on and that freedom is really great. The rest from 
each of our salaries goes into our offset account then where we save up the money while we're also saving on our loan interest. And when that gets large enough, we then go and invest it. So I know some people recommend putting all your money in the offset account and then just only taking out what you need for your living expenses and your entertainment and your savings. But I find that you never really get a set amount or a decent amount left over to build up that offset account. So I find you need to separate the amounts out. And yeah, if you kept all your money in your offset account, you might save a little bit more interest, but you're also going to spend a lot more too. You're going to spend everything that's there and you're not going to know what is for investment and what is for living expenses and what's for personal entertainment and spending and what is for savings. You don't know it all because you just look and it's all in there. It's all spendable. And that's where I think most people get get stuck with spending all their money. <laughs> that You'll be surprised at how quick that offset account can then build up uh, when you're not seeing the money when you, and you also don't feel guilty about using the money that's in the other accounts because it's for that purpose. And because it's automatically transferred, it just builds up. And before you know it, you've got a decent amount to use in each of the in the savings account and in the investment offset account. So what percent of income should you be saving? Well, I've heard many financial planners suggest 10% of income to save for investment. And look, this really is only, only should be a starting point to me and to every other person I've spoken to that is either wealthy or is doing certainly getting ahead. So when you start out, you save as much as, as you actually can and don't worry too much about the percent. It's about the habit of putting set amounts of money aside and paying yourself first when you get paid. So that 10% to me really should only be a starting point. And to create the kind of wealth to generate a decent passive income, I think you're going to need to save a much higher percent. But don't be daunted about that initially. Start out by setting up the account structure we've mentioned, allocate the amounts from each of your pays, then focus. start focusing on tracking and reducing your expenses. Now, that sounds boring, doesn't it? Look, there's some great apps for making this easy. You can pull in your bank feeds and you can track expenses by category. And the app that I use is called Money Brilliant. And that really helps me keep on top of the ongoing costs and other things that can be quite variable, helps you see where you're spending your money. And you'll be shocked sometimes. I, I am blown away when I see how much I'm spending on certain things. And then you can decide, look, is it worth still having these in my life to forego the money that I could have had for a, a better holiday per year? Sometimes it's not worth that two or three coffees a day when you see how much you're spending on coffee. And look, I'm not about being cheap by any stretch I'm about being frugal and knowing where my money's going so then I can make better use of it and I still want to enjoy life along the way. So once you get your expenses more under control and you start reducing them, then you can start to focus on finding ways to increase income. So the number one way to do that is to become more valuable to whatever your job or your business is that you're doing. So educate yourself, upskill yourself, level up, become indispensable 
so that you'll be more valued in the marketplace, either that be by your boss or by your clients, and you'll receive more money. It really is that simple. If you're not getting paid enough, increase your value, up your skills, and you'll ultimately receive that money or you won't stay working there. You'll find somewhere else to work that will pay you and what you're worth. So all of a sudden, you'll find yourself increasing the percent that you can save each month. And for us, it it slowly started creeping up. And because we kept our expenses the same, even when we got pay increases, don't go increasing those reoccurring expenses every time you get a pay increase. And all of a sudden, you'll find that you're at, you know, 40%, 50% and moving the needle up even further. And it'll boggle you as to how much you're able to keep for investment. And that's when finding your next deposit is a hell of a lot easier. And I love the saying, it's not about how much you make, it's about how much you keep and put to investing. So don't be daunted if your income's on the lower side. There's plenty of people that have made it to being financially free with lower incomes. And if you adopt these ways to become a great money manager, you'll make much better use of what you do have. And that's the absolute habit that you need to get down or you will never be wealthy. So money patterns define ultimately your level of wealth. And what I've seen from the different classes of money, and I'm not making any judgments on people here, is that the poor tend to spend every dollar they make. So they've got as many expenses as they do income, never have enough money aside for investing, and that's why they're going to stay poor ultimately. The middle class often have good credit, so they can actually spend more than they make on things that mostly go down in value. So they're always buying depreciating things, cars, jet skis, other things that are over the top on clothes and consumer goods, all the things that decrease in value. And because they're putting it on their credit cards, they've got shopper accounts, go MasterCards, all the rest of it. Guilty of doing that in my earlier years <laughs> with Harvey Norman. It takes such a long time when you start adding those reoccurring expenses that just add up, then all of a sudden you're not getting enough income to save and put towards other things. And it could take a real long time to dig yourself out of that hole. So the biggest difference with the rich is they buy assets that go up in value and that put money in their pocket. And they use the the passive income from their assets to pay for some of the luxuries that might cost money ongoing. So if they are going to buy a boat, they go, they would pay cash, but they would, to get the cash in the first place, they'd go and buy an asset that is going to give them income and they will save it up and go and use it. That way, they're adding assets to fund those other liabilities. When you combine being a great manager of money with buying well, adding value, and then tracking and supporting evaluations, you'll find your next deposit is ready to use in no time. I hope these tips have helped. And if you're enjoying our podcast, give us a rating on wherever you're listening, share it with a friend. And I love getting feedback from listeners. If you want to drop me an email or a message, if you found it valuable. Thanks for tuning in. Catch you next one. Mm -hmm.